0: Hello, welcome to Boss Women, a podcast about women, comedy, and business. My name's Katie, and this is my mum, Karen.
1: Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Mama said said, there'll be days like this. There'll
0: be days like this. Mama Mama said. Karen, who have we got
2: today? Um, yes, you're going straight into it, Katie. You normally say, how are you, Mum? What's going on? Get, on? Get on with it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> haven't got very long. No, we're really, really, really excited and privileged to have the wonderful Joyce McMillan here. Joyce is a writer, a theatre critic, uh, and a broadcaster. And she has been um, broadcasting, political, and arts journalists for 40 years. Uh, Joyce also is the chair and helped create the Scotsman Fringe First Awards and the annual Theatre Critics Award. Her ability to capture the essence of theatre is incredible and her passion for the art form is incomparable. She is most highly respected theatre critic in the UK today. Club oh, Italian.
1: After, after that intro, I don't know what to say. Thank you very much. For- <laughs> that's great
2: (laughs) no but it it is actually all true that's the thing we are in (laughs) awe of you we are we are when you stand up on the the stage when you're announcing the awards the knowledge you have of every single show you go and see is incredible yeah Yeah. it's It's just we we love it
1: and it's a show
2: in itself to tell you the truth
0: thank you So before we get into uh, current day fringe and everything that's happening right now, because there's a lot happening right yeah. now, um, we wanted to go back. <laughs> yeah, or not a lot happening. Um, we want to go back uh, and find out a bit more about you, um, Joyce. Uh, tell us about your childhood. Where did you grow up? Um, and a bit about your kind of relationship with your parents and your mum specifically.
1: Well, I grew up, um, I, was, uh, I, I always feel that um, I'm, I, I'm sort of with Liz Lockhead, really, who's slightly older than me, but not much, um, who wrote that after the war was the dull country. She called it a dull country, but, but uh, you know, the poem goes on to explain the ways in which it wasn't dull. But after the war is the dull country in which I was born. And after the war is the country in which I was born. I was born in Renfrewshire. In 1952, um, I was actually born in Paisley, that's where the maternity hospital was. But I grew up in a wee village called Kilbarkin, where my father's family had actually been weavers for how long? 350 years at least. Um, yep. my, my, my father's mother's family were in the, the poll tax register of 1601 as weavers for the building, uh, for, the, for the village where we lived. And, um, and she had, as a wee girl, helped her dad with his own weaving business in Kilbarkin. Um, and uh, he and a group of another 19 of the, of the slightly more successful sort of artisan weavers had bought the land to build the row of houses that we lived in, which had quite nice living accommodation on the upper floor and a weaving shop in the lower floor. And I can just remember the last um, house in the row, which was, um, which was a weaving shop. Um, and there was an old man still working a loom there when I was a wee girl in the 1950s. So, um, that had been built in the 1880s when my grandma was born. Um, And um, so, there was a very strong sense of place about my childhood. Um, My mother and father uh, my father came from that weaving family, um, but his mother had been a very restless character and he'd actually spent part of his childhood in Detroit. They emigrated to America, but then it didn't work out, so they came back again in the end. Uh, but my, my grandmother Maggie was a very restless woman who kind of, you know, went to and fro across the Atlantic several times, um, just sort of trying to find somewhere where she felt at peace, but she ended up uh, back in Cobarken and, and was never at peace, you know, she was quite a feisty Um, character. Um, And and, um, my mum and dad, of course, were the generation that were just approaching the end of their teens when the First World War broke out. They were both born in 1920. My mum's family was very different. They had actually migrated to Renfrewshire from from Edinburgh. So my mum's mum's, uh, parents were Edinburgh, well, my mum's father was an Edinburgh man. And and they had um, a plumbing business at Jock's Lodge actually. Um, My granny on that side came from Denny in Stirlingshire but she and my grandpa met in Edinburgh in the 1890s. Um, My grandpa was a socialist and a kind of at that time a plumber's apprentice Um, And he used to be in Keir Hardy's bodyguard and all that, my grandpa, John Webster. Um, And he started this plumbing business at Jock's Lodge. But then when it came to the First World War, the business was kind of requisitioned for the war effort. And he was sort of moved. Um, with his family through to Renfrewshire so that he could work on ships on the Clyde. He used to cycle down to the the shipyards in Port Glasgow from where they lived in Houston and um, and do that. So it was like my parents' lives were sort of totally shaped by those two world wars uh, of the 20th century. And my mum and dad had both been in the forces during the war. Um, they had they had known each other before the war but they sort of came when they came back they sort of got together so they were married in 1949 um, they had a kind of tragedy and their first baby died they had a baby in 1950 my older sister Dorothy who had one of these heart things that could easily be uh, fixed now but but she you know she just she's died when she was a baby of some months old, and um so that was a terrible tragedy back then because nobody talked about it i mean talk about grief yeah, counseling it was like whatever the opposite of grief counseling was nobody yeah. talked about it you know and so everybody just had to get on with their life so that was a kind of big trauma which i think had some kind of impact on me that i was the next to come along and then i was the oldest of three joyce june and heather um, all so girls? We were all, yeah, all girls. And, and Dorothy was a girl, so it was four girls all together that my parents yeah. had. And um, and we, we so we were the 1950s girls growing up in that sort of post-war thing. And I mean, in, in many ways it was absolutely great. You were living in a world where people wanted to put the past behind them and look to the future. You were living in a world where everybody was saying, never again a war like that never again poverty and hunger like we had in the 1930s everybody was a social democrat everybody believed in the nhs everybody believed in free education up to university stage and so my generation was the one that benefited from all of that from the post-war settlements to which people like me really owe everything because my parents weren't from a posh or privileged background at all. They were very well educated people, they were very intelligent, they were very curious about the world and they had both done quite well during the war. My mum actually became an officer in the Women's um, um, Army Corps during the war and she was based at Dalkeith at New Battle Abbey for a while. Um, 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 but but. Um, you know, when they came back, they just had to get on with their lives. My dad was a techie teacher in a junior secondary school and my mum didn't work when we were wee and then she actually became a journalist, oddly. She got a job at the Johnston Advertiser and oh, really? court reporter and all that kind of thing, yeah. And um, and then after that, she was a doctor's receptionist. Um, and, um, and um, you know, they, they absolutely believed that the future was always going to be better than the past. You know, the whole Narrative was my child. Of my childhood was there used to be things like poverty and hunger and get beggars on the street and all the rest of it. But we don't have that anymore because we've learned our lesson, you know. And so when Thatcher and her crew came in at the end of the 1970s, more or less suggesting it'd be quite good to have another dose of <laughs> what we got rid of at the end yeah. of the Victorian age, I was furious, and I've been yeah. furious ever since. I suppose talking about my mum. Um, I mean, she was an, an amazing woman in all sorts of ways. Um, they, they were both amazing. They had a very strong marriage, and they gave out a very. There was no mixed signalling. Do you know what I mean? They, 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 they gave us a very strong set of values that all three of us, you know, preserved right through our lives. We lost my youngest sister uh, fifteen years ago, but all of us, you know, my, my living sister and me. I'm, and the whole family still kind of stick very strongly to those values, you know, that, that community matters, that justice matters, that, that, that um, equal opportunity matters, that you need to structure your society so that those things are there. And that anybody who doesn't want to do that basically should be viewed with high suspicion, you know, that, 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 that good state provision is a good thing, all of that so all yeah. that sort of post-war you know all the stuff that you can see in Ken Loach's Spirit of 45 film yeah and it was very much their 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 the basis of their adult lives and um, and that's what they really passed on to us so they were very unified in that they mm-hmm. always voted Labour you know they would never have voted Conservative I remember in the in the 1964 election um when Harold Wilson became Prime Minister and it was the end of 13 years of Tory government. And um, I remember my dad taking me to Johnston Square to see Barbara Castle and Norman Buchan um, addressing the masses. Uh, Norman Buchan, who was a, a, a Scottish MP and a great um, a great um, um, advocate for folk music and all of that. He was one, actually, he was one of the founders of the Edinburgh Fringe in, in the kind of uh, yeah. uh, folk music movement that was represented in that very first fringe, him and yeah. his wife, Janie, Janie Buchan. So, um, so I remember him taking me down there and seeing this wee woman with flame-coloured hair, Barbara Castle, speaking in Johnston Square in 1964. And you know, it was just a feeling that it was a whole new world and this was it coming to fruition. You know, yeah. it was great, and I was a wee um, and I loved all that. You know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Can I interrupt and actually ask because I've never really heard about
0: that period of time being so hopeful. And obviously, Karen, you're. Uh, a very similar age to um, Joyce. We are in a similar age. I grew up in the fifties. Did you have Never. a similar feeling about that time? Um,
2: maybe I was I was too cosseted. I don't know because I. But I, I now when you say it, Joyce, it's interesting that you know that it was full of hope and it was very free. You felt um, you could enjoy your childhood. You know, you could go out and play and, you know, I mean, I was thinking when you were talking there that, that uh, being where you were, there must have been a lot of outdoor fields and, you know, did, were you outdoor a lot and...
1: I wasn't an outdoorsy kid, I have to say, and there's a, quite a strong feeling, I have to say, in my part of the world, that the outdoors kind of belong to posh folk. Um, you know, that, the, yeah. <laughs> you know that, that, that all the land belonged to somebody. I mean, I could, you know, my father always had this slight, you know, the lowland clearances and all that stuff that talked right. about. And the, there was always this slight edge to it of, you right. know, um, who's got the land? Because it certainly isn't us, you know. and. and um, and I remember my mother nearly going mental one time when the local hunt came riding down our row of houses, which was opposite a park. And, um, and, um, and you know, foxes, and you know, the wee fox. And, oh, and, and she, I, I mean, I remember her rushing out of the house in her apron and saying, Get your, you know, away from us, you know. And um, so, so oh, I've never really,
2: experienced that, luckily. <laughs> yeah,
1: things, like, things like riding, and, and uh, I, I mean, what was outdoor? Well, I mean, my dad was very keen on the outdoors in that sort of sense of being from that generation that used to go hiking in the 1930s and all that. And he, mm-hmm. he, um, he and his friends, when they were younger, cycled a huge amount. I mean, he had cycled the whole length and breadth of Scotland when he was young. And my mum too, when she was engaged to him, they would go these fantastic long cycle holidays all around um, Scotland with my uncle and, and aunt who, who got married at the same time. And... Um, And so they, I mean, my dad knew everything about the outdoors. He was a great fisherman. He he could tell you the songs of any bird, you know, he was, he was, he was passionate about it, but he didn't have much sense of ownership of it. And then I I never, I never voluntarily went in that direction because I was a really bookish kid. I liked to be at home with my books and my you know, yep. and and mm-hmm. chatting to my mom and dad, I, I didn't really, my mom says when my friends used to come around and play with me, I used to go, oh, it's my friend. <laughs> 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 I mean, I really, I couldn't really be bothered with other kids, to be honest. Um, and, um, and, um, and I was never one of these kids that was very good at children's games or anything. I could never skip right. I could never hopscotch right. I could never. So I, I just, I mean, obviously I was good at my lessons and that was it, you know. And um, so I didn't voluntarily seek out the sort of outdoorsy thing. But I suppose I just took for granted, Karen, like you were saying, that I could go out with my cousin who was a couple of years older and we could cycle for miles through the countryside ourselves. When yeah, we were 11, right. and nobody thought anything of it you know you'd take yeah. a wee bottle of fizz and a, some a sandwich or some biscuits or something and away you would go you know and um, we used to go out and play for hours in the local woodlands and things like that we never just thought anything about it you know yeah. there were a few sort of three or four mile walks around the village that we, we we went all the time you know and we'd just decide which one we were going and then we would potter off you know and um mm. And nobody—I mean, in those days, that was completely normal. And I do think—I I really feel sorry for kids today that are so—they they just have so little freedom, you know? right. and it's such a shame. It's because so, it, you need that freedom to sort of yeah. become yourself, you know. Yeah. When, you,
2: when you got towards your teenage years, uh, did you rebel, or were you um, were you angry, no, 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 or no, no, were you?
1: I wasn't a rebellious teenager. Uh, My my younger sister was much more rebellious. Um, I just just did schoolwork. I mean, I was cheeky in the sense that, I suppose my mother by this time, and I I think she was quite typical of a certain post-war generation of women who had done a heck of a lot during the war, but Mm -hmm. who just kind of accepted ideologically because there wasn't much feminist thinking about at the time that after the war was over and things went back to normal, they would all just become housewives, you know? So they did all just become housewives. And I mean, it was boring for them. It was low status compared with what they had been used to doing for quite a lot of them in the war. You know, my mother was an officer, and now suddenly she's a housewife in a village in the west of Scotland. Um, We lived in a council house. Um, for several years and you know that was a kind of low-status thing to do at the time but we really had no option there wasn't a lot of housing after the war my grandmother was still living in the family house and and she didn't get on that well with my mother so um, so there was no question of living there for very long um, although we did live there for a while Um, and um, and so you know a council house was the obvious option the council houses were great they were huge three bedrooms Parker Morris standards big gardens you know so um, So, um, we lived in the council scheme. So, you know, for for a woman like my mother, the whole thing was a bit of a... I mean, she absolutely loved having a family. She was great with us as kids. I don't remember us ever having... Any of the sort of conflicts and terrible rows and problems growing up that, that people often seem to have because and she was so inventive and so good at bringing up kids I mean yeah. she, she always had a poem or a song or something in her head that she could that she could use to kind of you know and, and, and sort of cheer us up or amuse us or distract us yeah. from whatever it was we weren't supposed to be doing. Yeah. So we, we really had an incredibly happy childhood. Mom and Dad were great. We used to drive along in the car, bawling your heads off singing and laughing, you know. And, <laughs> and, and we just had a great time. You were... Yeah, would you say that you were close
0: then? I mean, did your you know did your mum like hug you and would she tell you that she loved you, or was that just not really of the time? Or
1: uh, yeah, no, she would tell us that she loved us. No, we were quite a demonstrative family by the standards of the time, yeah. I would say. Um, yeah. and uh, she wasn't particularly touchy feely. I mm-hmm. think with hindsight, she was a bit. Um, she was a bit more physically restrained than I realised at the time. You know, um, later on in life, um, when I was sort of thinking and analysing it more, I realised that she probably, I mean, she, she herself was the seventh, or really the eighth of nine children, and I don't think she got a huge amount of, her own mother was amazing, one of these amazing women that brought up nine children on porridge and soup and all that, you know, but, but she, um, she, um, she really, nearly all of them lived to be in their 90s, unbelievable, my mum was 90 when she wow. died, but she wasn't the oldest, um, but anyway, um, 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 she, she was a bit restrained I think I think she'd been quite traumatised by some of the sort of casual inattention maybe she'd suffered mm-hmm. in her childhood I think she was very traumatised by the death of her first baby I think she yeah. just she, there was a restraint there definitely mm-hmm. she's not actually she wasn't actually the same kind of woman as me I mean I'm yeah. a much more um, I'm very like her in lots of ways but I'm a much more I think I'm a much more overtly sensual person. She loved to live in her mind, in the in in words and in poetry and in and in. Um, uh, she was a great storyteller, you know. Um, I I'm actually more of a, a sort of physical person, and I think that's why, in the end, I was drawn to theatre that brings all of these things together. You know, it's not that I don't care about words. Words have been, you know, my my work and my you know. Uh, my academic work, even when I was young and and my, my work now you know but it's, it's like they don't I'm not in love with them you know there are some people who just want to live their lives through books and things like that to me words are words are in a kind of relationship with reality with the world with the physical sensual world and if I can't get the whole thing, I find it a bit unsatisfying you yes. know. So I'm certainly not, as an adult, the kind of person that can just be happy curled up with a book and an apple for days on end. I'm, I'm not like that. I have to go away and cook something or see an exhibition or, you know, be with my friends or, yeah. or you know. I need to have a kind of sensual, um, um, physical and visual life yeah. as well as, as, well as a one that's lived through language, do you know. Yeah. And that's yeah. always been really important to me. Yeah. Yeah. So you went to uh, St Andrews University. What did you go to study? English, English language and literature. Yeah. Um, Although you did other subjects. I I was good at languages at school. I did French and German in my first couple of years at St. Andrews and you also had to do compulsory philosophy, which was good.
2: (laughs) What what drew you over to St. Andrews when you lived on the West Coast? What drew you away from home?
1: Um, well, we used to go on holiday to St Andrews, um, um, and so I knew the town a wee bit. We'd been on a couple of really nice caravan holidays in St Andrews, We'd never afford hotels, but we, we, you know, it was really nice sort of caravan holidays to be had in those days, it was the thing to do. And um, so we used to go to either North Berwick or St Andrews a lot of the time. I think my mother always wanted us to know the east of Scotland. I think she always felt that um, her family was basically an Edinburgh family, and they had a lot of the kind of there was a slight sort of sophistication, a lack of religiosity in my mum's family, and a, and a strong interest in politics that was kind of more urban. Whereas my dad's family were very much from that sort of Presbyterian you know, don't go out on a Sunday, don't make All an right, excuse. Yeah. you know, there, there was a lot of kind of social censure in my dad's background, and although he wasn't like that, he was a very jolly man, It you could see it in the culture of the village and why he had been brought up like that, you know, so I think she always wanted us to know that there was more to Scotland than just that, you know, that kind of Presbyterian village life, um, and she wanted us to know the East Coast, and um, she wanted us to know North Berk and St Andrews, and Edinburgh, I remember, bringing me and my cousin for a day in Edinburgh when we were 12. And I mean, the impact of it, you know, arriving in the train at Waverley and everything, seeing the castle and all that. I mean, it was really fantastic, you know. Mm. Um, So yeah, um, I knew St Andrews a little bit from going holidays there. And obviously it's a beautiful place. But Mm. I also very definitely had made an ideological decision by that time that I didn't want to go to Glasgow University because that's what the school, Paisley Grammar School, very aggressive academic school that just used your brain to build up its own prestige you know and it wanted me to sit the glasgow bursary competition and they wanted me to come top of it and they wanted more glory for paisley grammar school and they all went to glasgow university almost all the teachers have been to glasgow university most of the 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 kids that were able to go to university went to Glasgow. And I just thought, I'm not doing this. I'm not following this path. For one thing, if I go to Glasgow, I'll probably have to live at home. And that's not university as far as I'm concerned, thought I to myself. And of course, in those days, if you made the choice not to live at home, they gave you money to do it you know, you got a grant that you could live on and you got your tuition paid and you didn't have to worry about any of it. And on top of that, I sat at the St. Andrew's bursary competition and won £100 a year, or was it? I think it was £100 a year, which sounds like nothing. But in those days, it was actually the difference between your grant not being quite enough and actually being able to live quite well, you know? I mean, I used to work in a pub at night to to buy extra chocolate biscuits and coffee. But basically... (laughs) Um, You know, I I, I was absolutely, perfectly well off and left university without a a shred of debt. I mean, I worked hard for it. You know, sitting with St Andrew's bursary competition wasn't easy. It meant sitting like 13 long three-hour exam papers in in six days, you know, because you had to do it on top of it. it was the same week as the big... Um, six-year exams, you know, your six-year studies exams mm. and all that, but it was, it, and it was very hard work swatting through it all, but the fact was that with that effort, with the fact that my parents weren't particularly well off, um, and, and with the social settlement at the time, it meant I could have all that university education, never have to worry about money, yeah. sign on for unemployment benefit in the holidays if I needed to, but I never needed to, because I worked as a temp and a barmaid and all of that, um, and... Um, and you know, leave university without any debt after and four it, years. And it would have been the swinging sixties then. Yeah, and, the time. Uh, yeah, well, it was more like the seventy. I was at university from nineteen seventy to seventy four. All right. So the sixties were really when I was at school, and I was very into. The music. I was very into the Beatles and all that, but I couldn't really get into the teenage social life at all. I mean, it just didn't do it for me. You know, mm-hmm. grubby discos and grubby wee blokes, and I just. <laughs> I think that's fair enough, Joyce. <laughs> so it was. It was really. It just wasn't me. I, I couldn't do it. And, and Did that really... changed
0: when you went to university, then, Norm.
1: Um, yes, I was quite sociable when I went to university. Um, I got into various things at university. I sang in the chapel choir um, at St. Salvator's Chapel for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. I, um, I, um, I got involved in student politics, and it was a generation of people that are still sort of kicking about in Scottish politics. Really, that I was at, oh. at school with Mark Lazarovich used to be the uh, at university with uh, Mark Lazarovich used to be the MP for. North Edinburgh um, yes. um, until quite recently um, and various people like that you know who, uh, who are still about um, and it was quite a good generation at St Andrews it was interesting because there were, there were I mean well there were, there were some very strange Tories who later turned out to be the ideological kind of makers of Thatcherism really and they were very right-wing and I remember when I first encountered them I thought these people are mad they actually want to destroy everything that my parents' generation have built up since the Second World War. They actually yeah. want to destroy it. I remember meeting Michael Forsyth in the, in, the, in the SRC office one day in 1971, and he was that working class kid from Arbrook. And I looked into his funny wee beady eyes and he was wearing his gown, which nobody did except the most ludicrous nerds. And, and um, I thought, it, you know, they're nuts. They've been traumatized by a district nurse in their prams or something. They just, yeah. hate, they just hate the world they've grown up in, you know. Yeah, is- and, um, and there was all, all these people that founded the Adam Smith Institute and the Heritage Foundation in Washington. I mean, some of the key hubs of all this right-wing thinking that has happened since the 1970s. The people who helped to create them were at St. Andrews when I was there. So I got to know some of them. Um, mm-hmm. and is I was interested. When,
2: is this when you started being interested in the theatre and what brought, what took you into theatre? Well, that was actually
1: it. later, it was interesting, I came into the theatre through all this because what happened was I got into student politics and um, um, I got to know some of these Tories and I also got to know the people that were opposed to them and obviously I felt much better with the people that were opposed to them. Okay. I got involved in kind of student labour things um, I met a lot of nice people through that but I began to I mean it was very ideological in those days people were always putting down motions saying that we should nationalize the 300 major monopolies immediately and all that and I you know it was too theoretical and it was very male dominated and then I met the great generation of St Andrew's feminists Joel Clifford's wife uh, Susie Innes and um and, um, and a woman called Zoe Fairbairns, who went on to become quite a well-known novelist. And they were sensational. Susie was just back from Haight-Ashbury. She had been in San Francisco oh, really all of that, despite having run away from a Christian brethren family in Peterborough. Um, (laughs) So she she was absolutely an astonishing person to meet. And I got very friendly with all of them. And I got into the women's movement in St Andrews. And what drove me into the women's movement, really, was my sense of everything that was wrong with male politics. You know, men just repeating themselves, grandstanding, uh, having a very strong sort of herd mentality and, you know, and, and always saying the same thing as their mates were saying at any given moment. And I thought, where's the freedom of thought and flexibility in this, you know? So I found feminist thinking at the time, the personal is political, you see. I was always looking for this link between the words and the ideas and the personal and my own physical, personal experience of being a woman and everything else you know
0: mm-hmm.
1: so um, I got involved in feminism and somehow through that very intense feeling that the personal was political I became more and more in search of um, a place where you could discuss ideas and you could discuss um, and you could use fantastic language but it was in some way free and open and flexible and creative rather than people just going along certain ideological or, you know, even just verbal tram lines, you know, and always repeating the same language and the language getting more and more dead through repetition. And I thought, where does that not happen? I didn't know. I wasn't a great fan of theatre. But towards the late 1970s, I just started to go and see things in the Edinburgh Festival. I remember seeing Derek Jacoby playing Hamlet. And I just thought, this is it you know mm-hmm. this is the place where all of these things can come together yeah. ideas sensuality visual yeah. images wonderful language this is it um, and then the, the 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 show that really kind of almost propelled me into being a critic was this production of uh christopher marlowe's edward ii that, that stephen Macdonald did when he was uh, at the lyceum in the little lyceum the studio um, that was around the corner. And um, it was so powerful about the, the kind of othering of that king who was a homosexual and the hatred that was directed towards him because of his relationship with his favourite and so on. And it was so brilliantly staged in that tiny little space. And a lot of people who saw it still remember it. It was absolutely mm. amazing. And I just thought, right, I, I've got to find some way of explaining what I... Um, feel about this and I, um, I had a friend who worked at the BBC and I was talking to him about it and he said it was Patrick Rayner who's still a BBC producer now I think he's semi-retired and he said why don't you come on the next time we've, uh, we're doing the festival and be one of our festival theatre critics oh, really so that was how my career as a theatre critic began <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> did you ever think
1: of going into public life in political you see, I could never. It was that same thing, Karen. I could never. I, I, I couldn't be bothered with the straitjacket of having yeah. to agree with party policy and yeah, all of that. Yeah. I mean, if I went into politics now, I would probably join the Green Party because you know yeah. i really care uh, very much about um, you know the whole future of the planet and and i i would probably i would probably do that now but the the reason you could tolerate a party like the greens is because it's small and it's Mm -hmm. not in government and it doesn't have to have these rigid disciplines that 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 parties of government or parties that are likely to be in government have to have you know and yet they're the ones that can actually do something so i just never felt i could do the party politics thing i mean i did a huge amount of civic politics the whole 1990s i mean the endless hours of work I put into the Scottish Constitutional Convention I wrote big chunks of what became the you know I was chairing a committee for the Scottish Constitutional Convention and I wrote a chunk of what became the Scotland Act 1998 you know describing how the Parliament should work and how its electoral system should work and so all of that movement for the Scottish Parliament um, and you know that all the kind of non-party political bits of it I was really involved with you know Canon, Kenyon, right, and all that, the churches, the women's groups, the, you know, I was chairing things, I was writing things, I was I was working on committees all through the 1990s, and I also did, at that time, a lot of international work. I was involved in a thing called the Helsinki Citizens' Assembly, which was like a civic citizens assembly for the whole of Europe um, and the, I mean the traveling I did for for years I was heading off to Eastern Europe just about every weekend at my own expense just to take part in these meetings and discussions about what kind of new Europe we could try and have you know and of course it all went pear-shaped because the the, the market people had got there before us and started imposing this kind of putinesque oligarch capitalism instead of um instead of any kind of real democracy but it was it was an amazing time you know and it, it wasn't all it wasn't all bad because you know some of the the countries that we were most engaged with like the czech republic have actually done really well and joined the eu and all the rest of it you know and okay. um, the thing was actually based in prague so i spent you know kind of every other weekend in prague during the early 90s which was an amazingly fascinating yeah. experience yeah. and what I mainly learned from all of that is that people are just people the differences between people are so superficial language yeah. a little layer of culture uh, yeah. you know really underneath people are so similar in their aspirations and their hopes and their fears most of them there's always an element of psychopaths in any society but you know yeah. most yeah. people um most people um are, it's surprisingly easy to get a consensus if you really work at it and I yes A radical consensus is really powerful. That's what I found really. But I've never been able to put in practice in British politics because Yeah. Well, look at the way (laughs) it is.
0: So um going back to the fringe, you touched on the kind of first time that you went to the fringe, but when when did you go to the fringe during university at all or was it all afterwards? Not really.
1: Um I, I I remember coming for a weekend at the end of my school career when I was 18 with my friends, um, my wee group of friends. We came, we stayed in a B&B in um, Mayfield Road and we went to a few French things. And that was my first experience of it. And I mean, we just thought it was great. You know, there just seemed to be so much going on and all the rest of it. Um yeah, well, and was that, so how, how can I think? That would thing? be 1970, I suppose, just before I went yeah. to university. Yeah. Um, and then... I didn't really take much interest until I had this light bulb moment. I was very involved in politics and all the other things. And I was trying to write a PhD actually about Ben Johnson, the Jacobean playwright, which didn't work. I'm just not, I'm not really attracted to the world of academe at all. And so I could sort of sense that wasn't going to work. And I was panicking a bit when suddenly I got this chance to write and talk about theatre and it all began to fall fall into place, you know. Um, So it was about 1977-78 when I started really going to the Fringe um, and and taking it seriously, you know, as part of my life. Um, And then I began reviewing it in 1978 and after that, that since then, it's been kind of non-stop really. That was with The Scotsman, was it? Um, uh, yes. Well, after after the the first round of um, doing Festival View with Neville Garden, which was the, the Festival oh, yeah. in seventy eight, I um I wrote to Alan Wright at the Scotsman and I said I want to be a theatre critic and um, and. Um, And Alan was great. He said, well, send me a couple of reviews of things you've seen. So I sent him a couple and he said, well, you can certainly write. I'll try and fit you in. And and so I started being the kind of third string theatre critic for The Scotsman after that. And he was great. I mean, he didn't know me from Adam. There was nothing, you know, to link us in any way. And yet he just looked at my copy and he said, this girl's got a bit of talent. I'm going to give her work. And yeah. you know, it, it, there was no kind of feeling that I was being kept out because other people had gone to school with other people or there was nothing like that. He was he was he was really a great editor, Alan Wright, I think. A great and, and he, he, was, he was the inventor of the French firsts back in the early seventies.
0: Yeah. And did you so did you manage to make a living from it? From Um
1: Um Did I manage to make a living from it? <laughs> <laughs> Everything was much better paid back of then course, than it yeah. is now. Um, I, I, I moved gradually towards making a living from it. I was working. Um, I was working at a development um, um, charity. Well, I was married anyway, so I was sharing my living costs with my then husband, yeah. who, was, um, who was somebody I'd met at St. Andrews and had a lot of political, you know, things in common with.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and um, and um, so um, my living costs weren't so high. He had a job um it wasn't very well paid job it was a job at, at basically SCVO, you know the 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 voluntary organisations council in okay. scotland um and um are you in edinburgh then was this Edinburgh? Uh, yeah yeah we came to edinburgh after we graduated um I, we had a year in london and durham he was doing a, a a masters thing in durham and and i worked in the pub opposite the prison in durham where, oh, really? pub, <laughs> where dollars and marion price were under hard duress because it was (laughs) the height of the IRA bombing campaign and all that. Mm -hmm. And the Cow, the pub was called, it was full of prison officers. It was very entertaining to work in, actually. I love Durham. What a beautiful city, my God. Mm -hmm. I mean, I used to spend hours in that cathedral just feeding my sensual self, you know. And this was about the time of my life when I was trying to come to terms with the fact that I couldn't just live intellectually, and verbally, which was kind of what my culture had told me to do, uh-huh. you know, because it, it, those were the respectable things to do. Uh, that I, I really had this bit of me that was much more sort of sensual and visual and all of that, you know. So I would sit in the cathedral, which is gorgeous for hours, thinking about that and all the rest of it. That was my year in Durham. But we came to Edinburgh immediately after that. And I actually did teacher training at Murray House. That was never going to work either. I felt <laughs> stuck in a school all day. I couldn't get out of it fast enough. I yeah. just, whoever the person is that can do this, stand trapped in front of gangs of hostile children all day. <laughs> and I tell you what, from that moment to this, any proposal for paying teachers a million quid a year, I would just say yes. Because anybody who's prepared to do that, to, to my mind, is an absolute hero. So, um, so um that was never happening, although my, my sister, my middle sister became a teacher and taught art in Dumbartonshire all her working life. Um 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 so no um what, what was the question? Can't remember. <laughs> anyway, uh, we, came, we, we came to Edinburgh in nineteen seventy five and I've lived here yeah. since. Yeah. Yeah. Bought this flat east London Street for ten thousand pounds in nineteen eighty. Oh, oh
2: fantastic. Wow. It was
1: it, it needed a lot of doing to it, but it was great. Oh
2: how fantastic.
0: So you now you sorry, we're talking at the same time.
2: <laughs> so you became a journalist, really?
1: Yeah, by by kind of accident, you know. I I I I I was I always remained interested in politics. It was never just about oh, the arts is wonderful, you know, the sort of razzle-dazzle and all that. I always wanted arts that, that you know, had some connection with the world and that could shift people's perception of the world a little bit. That's why I love the work that Henry does, you know, at, um, yes. at, um, at um, the Guild of the Balloon. Because he, um, he I suppose just like me, he's, he's the kind of person who wants his art to mean something, to say something about the world that is... Yeah, and and um, I like art like that. It doesn't have to be deadly serious or anything. I mean, some of the, the best sort of world shifting stuff that I saw in my early years as a reviewer was actually comedy, because it was at the moment of that great comedy boom, you know. Yeah. And I remember the first time I saw Arthur Smith, I remember yeah. the first time I saw Simon, you know, and, and, and I just mm-hmm. thought. And um, um, these people are brilliant, you know, they're, they're using comedy to change the world. It was a boom in the 80s, wasn't there? Oh, it was fantastic. It was, and I mean, they were such talented people and they're still all over our media today. You know, the ones that are still alive, you know, sadly, <laughs> most, well, you know, lost people like Jeremy Hardy, but most of the rest of them are still... Are still on the go, you know and I yeah. hated it when I had to give up reviewing comedy because I could see all these connections between what was happening in comedy and what was happening in theater I mean to me it is just a form of theater you know yeah. and I've never had any time for the sort of Ricky DeMarco moaning and groaning and uh, sort of setting theater and comedy against each other as if it was a yeah. competition you know which would be more dominant in the fringe the yeah. fact is good performance is good performance and a good comedian You know, as I learned then, you know, a good stand up comic is uh, an artist just like anyone. I mean, I mean, and there's people like Daniel, what's his name, Daniel Kitson, who have just completely crossed the line. And why not? Mark Thomas. Yeah, Mark Mark Thomas. You know. Um, 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 so, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed that sort of early phase of my reviewing life. And the Fringe was growing by leaps and bounds. Bilberdick, Coots had just launched the assembly rooms. Um, you know, yeah. it, was, it was a very exciting period. And it was an exciting period in Scottish theatre, and it was also an exciting period for the Fringe. And, you know, that first decade of my sort of reviewing life was really yeah. fantastic. It was such mm-hmm. a privilege to be there, just yeah. do it, you know.
0: And so how did the Fringe First Awards come about?
1: Well, Alan Wright had founded them back in 1972, I think. Mm -hmm. We had a celebration for, for uh, For 60 years of uh, uh, 50, 40 years of them, and uh, um, back in about 2012, I think. And so, the, the 50th anniversary will be coming up soon. Uh, yeah. And the idea was simply to encourage people to bring new work to the fringe and not just to come with a production of Richard III or something, you know. <laughs> it was kind of inspired by the success of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, which I think was one of the first winners. Um, 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 which was a huge thing. You know, it just launched Tom Stoppard's career right there in Cranston Street halls. You know, and yeah. Um, and um, yeah, it was just it was just to have a kind of spirit of the new on the fringe and um, not, not sure recycling all the to you. Yeah,
0: yeah. And how did you start to get involved in? Um, those well, awards?
1: I joined the Scotsman. Um, I had been a columnist for Scotland on Sunday. Oh, I can't remember how it all worked out now. Um, I'd, uh, yeah, I'd, been, I'd actually had a, a, a paradise part of my career. And I had three really big employers. I was the radio critic of The Herald. I was uh, the Scottish theatre critic of The Guardian. Um, and at a time when they sometimes gave you 600 words for a, a review, you know, it was, it was wow. beautiful. And also it was quite well paid. Um, um, and I was writing a political column for Scotland on Sunday. I started out doing that for Sunday Times Scotland when Andrew Jaspin was in charge of it. And um, then when he went to Scotland on Sunday, he took me with him. So I had these three strings to my bow, which was fantastic. Um, But uh, in the middle of the 1990s, that got a bit hard to sustain. When you get to a certain level as a journalist, newspapers kind of want to own you, you know. And Scotland on Sunday decided it wanted to own me. So I sort of joined... Scotsman for a while then I went to the Herald for a while and then in 1998 I came back um to the Scotsman and I've been in the Scotsman group ever since so it was uh, 1998 when I came back as the Scotsman's theatre critic and um and so that's how long is that now that I've been doing that job 22 years and um and about two years after that Robert Dawson Scott was the arts editor but for some reason he was away or unwell or something during the Fringe, um, and someone else was holding the fort. And I turned up for the Fringe First Awards that year, I think it was 2000, and there was nobody there from no. the Scotsman. Were you kidding? There was nobody there to hand over the awards. So the message from Robert <laughs> saying you couldn't do it, it, sort of failed to get through in some way or something. And, yeah. and, and there was nobody in charge. There was a woman from marketing who had got the plaques made, there was all the people that had been invited because they'd been nominated and started, you know, because uh, they'd won. And, um, and um, there was nobody, so I just- And got you it. were there. I'd seen, I'd seen most of the shows and I just busked the others and, then, um, and, and, and I did it. That was in the place at the back of the fringe office. And um, ever since I've been doing it really. So that's well 20, 22 years of kind of running and I thought this is important. And yep. I also had this sense of it being the legacy of Alan Wright, who I think, I can't remember when Alan died, but he, he, he died quite young. I don't think he was... In, was he dead in, I think he probably had died by 2000, yeah. And so I, I felt this sense of duty to him and to the sort of tradition of the Scotsman supporting new work on the Fringe to keep it going, you know? And that's so I just nice. thought, right, I'm going to do this. And, I did. and that's the whole
2: thing. The Fringe, uh, the fringe firsts are so important for a theatre company to come up they all want to to achieve that award because it gives them kudos and it helps them tour and yeah. you know it, it's just wonderful and that's the whole point about the fringe is for new
1: work to come along
2: and yeah the, the platform for new work and
1: I know and, and I mean there's something quite nice about the fringe first in the sense that there's not a short list, there's not a It's just the best we can do as a group of reviewers to try and identify new work that's really exciting in the space of a week of the fringe, you know, so it's not, it's not kind of terribly competitive in that sense, because it's all too quick. You know, people have got no way of knowing whether they're really in the running or not until the very last minute and then you know, so so it's 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 and and also there's no limit to the number we can give. If it's a particularly good week, we can dole out nine of the things, you know. And if it's yeah, not a great week, we do four or five. We try not to do too many in the last week because it makes the big award ceremony too long. But you know, incredibly it's
0: incredibly
2: hard work for all of yeah. you that you oh, and yeah. It's I mean, so how
1: many But what I've always found about the fringe is that people say to me at the end, you must be exhausted. You've seen 80 shows or whatever and written about nearly all of them. And, and I'm like, well, it's just not the way it works. I mean, for me, my whole life as a working theatre critic, it's not been about me expending energy on theatre. It's sometimes that. But if the theatre is any good at all, it feeds you back. So if you're lucky enough like me to be able to pick what you think are going to be the best things on the fringe mm-hmm. and just go around seeing them, you get so much energy back. It's just yes. like moving on to a whole new energy level. And, mm-hmm. and you know, as the fringe goes on, I often think to myself, why can't life just be like this all the time? You know, with people, well, obviously, because you've run out of loo roll and all that, you know, but <laughs> but... <laughs> You know, I mean, that's the basic thing about the fringe. It's putting the physical support systems in place, so you've got enough oatcakes, loo roll, and you know, mm-hmm. basic supplies, tea, and stuff like that to last you until the end of it. Yeah. You know, because yeah. you're just not going to have time to pay much attention to that. Yeah. During it. But, yeah. but, um, but, I think the the kind of energy exchange that goes on in the fringe is colossal. Yeah. And and you know, nobody who hasn't experienced it can. Never really know what that's like. You can talk yeah. about the fringe, you can show people the statistics, you can it's try really, to explain yeah. what it means to have fifteen thousand performers arriving in a small city and every single little space in the city centre turning into a theatre. Um, but but you know, it's it's it until people experience the force of energy that that is, they just they just can't know what it's like. You yeah, know? exactly. And, and this might be a bit of
0: a difficult question to ask you, but um, I'm desperate to know, personally or professionally, what do you think bring, means it makes a good show? What do, you, what do you look for when you go and see a show? What makes five stars for you? Um, is that too difficult to answer?
1: I can what makes four stars actually, because very okay. few shows are perfect, you know? But yeah. what, makes, what makes a really good four star or five star show is, it's a mixture of very very high skill and competence so Mm -hmm. you know I don't want to see people being amateurish I mean some a lot of audiences who are not as used to live performances a critic obviously is seem to quite enjoy a certain level of amateurishness in live Mm -hmm. performance because it's different it's different from and and some people even enjoy that kind of imitation of amateurishness that some performers yeah. do which yeah. tends to slightly irritate me unless it's very well done
2: there's an arrogance in that yeah. i think
1: so and also it's taking advantage of the fact that people are not as used to live performance as maybe you and your chums are do you know what yeah. i mean so yeah. you're, you're making them laugh at the fact that you're performing live and that yeah. to me is a waste of time you've only got a certain amount of time there are more important subjects to talk about than the fact that you're performing live you know yeah. and, and um. And so, there's um, far too much theatre about theatre. Obviously, there's far too much theatre and comedy made by people who don't watch enough of other people's theatre and comedy to see how good it can really be at its best. You know, I mean, there's a huge amount of theatre being made now by kids who never go to the theatre, and that is not a good thing. But um, um, and what I'm looking for really then is a, a really impressive display of skill and competence on stage, like the kind of professional. Um, 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 competence or you know ability that okay. that that just takes the responsibility off the audience's shoulders and says, look, I am now going to take you on a journey and I know how to drive the train. Do you know? Yeah. So that kind of feeling. It's not that the audience is not engaged, but that they they're now about to be taken somewhere that you know they couldn't go under their own steam. And then um, and then and um, secondly, some kind of um, um, some kind of sense of purpose you know I mean I love to see um, people just enjoying themselves but I don't think in in humanity there is such a thing as just enjoying yourself you know I think you have to it has to be kind of for something it has to be shaped by something so I'm always looking for some kind of sense of sort of structure or meaning or or purpose that sort of goes beyond um, um, just the sort of entertainment skills or the tap dancing or the razzle dazzle, you know. And and all of the great shows that I've seen that have been like Circus or Tap Dancing or Razzle Dazzle, they've had a kind of undertow, you know, they've been about gay people coming out of the dark or they've been about, I don't know, women, you know, finding a new voice or something, you know. So the kind of voice for the voiceless feeling about a really good theatre journey, I often think. And then there's a feeling of timeliness that somehow theatre is a thing that happens in the now and you want to feel in, at some level that this is something that couldn't have happened before and, and might not be able to happen next year but it really can happen now you know yeah. so yeah. Um, kind of timeliness but it's mm-hmm. very difficult to um, to describe how that expresses itself it could be as simple as the styling of the costumes, or the costume that the performer is wearing, it could be, you know, it could be something very subtle that just yeah. makes you think this belongs to twenty twenty and not any other year, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, so those are the three things I'm looking for, really. So a skill, yeah. a structure in the sense of feeling purposeful and shapely, and mm-hmm. um, and um, and timeliness, a kind of yeah. feeling of belonging to the moment.
2: Yeah. Do you do you not have to go through a whole range of emotions though to watch theatre.
1: Yes, that's what I like about it. I like (laughs) going through a whole range of emotions. Um, But you didn't mention emotions just now in the things that you... Oh well the journey and when I talk about it having a purpose and a shape and a a journey to it. um, that is a, usually a journey that involves some emotion. I mean, you can't. the thing about theatre is, Karen, there's no rules, really. Yeah. I mean, I just said three rules, but I could go out tomorrow. And the thing I love about it is that I could go out tomorrow and see something that doesn't obey any of these rules and think it was the best piece of theatre I'd ever seen. Because you yeah. just never know. That's the point. And it is taking you on a journey. And you could say that nine times out of ten, um, it might be an emotional journey. You know, you'll be identifying with a character or, you know, hoping that, you know, something will turn out for them or, you know, okay. following a story that's being told that has all these emotional ups and downs that a good story has. Um, but, you know, if you think of a playwright like Brecht, Brecht specifically said, I don't, can't, they bother taking people on an emotional journey. I need them to think, I need them to analyse, I need them to understand the world they're living in. And wrote these great plays, which do, by the way, have great emotional moments in them but you know he would have he would have smacked you if you'd said that any of them was taking you on an emotional journey because you know to him that was a bourgeois indulgence so 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 there's no rules really about how to be a great theatre maker everybody has to make their own rules but I would say that the three things that I've said are still things that I tend to look for I don't like shapelessness I don't like amateurishness and I don't like things that are timeless in a kind of airy-fairy airy, way. There are good ways yeah. of being timeless but I, I think things should be kind of
0: mm-hmm.
1: focused on the time that they're in as well sure. as maybe having some eternal yeah. value.
0: Yeah, so as somebody that has for the past 20 years been going to hundreds of shows every Watching. Fringe, <laughs> 40 years, 40 years, yeah. years. <laughs> um, how did you feel on the 1st of April um, when the announcement of the, all, all five festivals being cancelled in August. How did
1: you feel? I, bereaved. Mm. I mean, it's, it's not like a bereavement where something's totally dead, but yeah. it's, it's, um, it was a real bereavement. It was like, although I knew it was coming, and you know, Mark Fisher and I were just saying yeah. to each other you know, that day, although I knew it was likely to come, it, when it came, it was like a huge, almost like a physical shock. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing that people that, that, that don't sort of do the fringe, um, you know, don't come to it. I think people don't realise what a physical experience it is. You know, mm-hmm. in the days before it starts, everybody that's concerned with it can feel it coming like a, an express train or a tsunami. You know, it's, yeah. like, it's like this thing is going to crash over Edinburgh and you just have to swim, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and the idea that, that of that thing not coming, that whole sort of physical experience of that weight of people arriving just not happening um, 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 all of the things that would have happened in the context of that just not happening I mean in a way it's it's like it, it is interesting because it's like the whole thing has been going at such a rate and growing at such a rate over the last few decades that it is interesting the idea of it having a breather and maybe having to change yeah. direction a bit, you know, just leaving aside all the financial disaster and everything. There is something yeah. interesting about that idea, you know, yeah. but, and and some might feel that it's um, quite salutary in a way. And obviously, you know, as I discussed with Karen earlier this month, uh, there, there's, there's people who think that it's long overdue for a kind of rethink and all the rest of it. But, yeah. um, 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 I think what people don't really, and I, you know, I said this at the top of that piece when I interviewed Shona as well as Karen, um, I think a lot of people still don't get it, that this thing basically organises itself. I mean, I don't think that nothing will happen in Edinburgh this August. I don't know what will happen, but I bet you, unless we're all still in absolute lockdown, which I don't think we will be by that time, so I think something will happen. Weirdos will appear doing distance of art. That's that's
2: the worry. That is the worry (laughs) that only weirdos will come out.
1: Yeah, but 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 you know, um um, well, they won't get much of an audience, obviously. I mean, but they might get an audience of weirdos, which would suit them. (laughs) (laughs) So you know, I um and and um I just uh I just felt yeah, completely
2: I I just want to tell you that. Um be showing off about my daughter, Katie was asked to write about how she felt about not having the festival. She's shaking her head now, um
1: mm-hmm.
2: but she wrote about the analogy of the festival being like a lover, like a loss a yeah. lover that she was not going to have yeah. this year. yeah, uh, would you like to explain it better, Katie? No, you- I would
1: not. <laughs> <laughs> That's a not, I mean I've talked about a tsunami and a, a train and a, a lot of. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like a physical encounter that's the point yeah. It's, yeah. it's an encounter that is intellectual emotional yeah. physical and spiritual and mm-hmm. all of these things come together and for the people that are involved in it it is a hugely complete kind of absorption of yourself into an event and and you know you're obviously going to miss that at all yep. of those levels, and it is yep. like it's it's like a a human relationship it's like a an encounter with a big force of nature it's those mm-hmm. things combined and it's yep. um it's really and it's that force of nature quality of it that I think most people who are not involved with it don't understand they think it's like any other festival where people pick and choose and things come and um and then it's over you know and and it's just not. It's just not quite like that because it's got this organic quality and always has had. And Mm -hmm. and now, because it is so huge, it just has this, you know, massively different impact on you from any other event. What
2: what do you think um, the future holds? I know we can all guess. What do you think is going to happen between now and what do you
0: think next year?
1: Well, I think everything will be different. I think this whole episode has been a huge and possibly not a bad sort of shock to the whole Western system of the way we think and live and mm-hmm. and um, and behave ourselves. I think people will hopefully i mean I, I i don't I don't think there's any way back to living exactly the way we did before, so I think there'll be a bit less traveling. I think people will. I think there'll be less availability of cheap travel anyway, because a lot of airlines and things are going to go down.
0: Um,
1: I think, um, so people will have to travel more selectively, I think, and think harder about traveling before they do it and use things like Zoom a lot more than they used to. Mm -hmm. Um, And then people who are in the performing arts, well, well, I mean, Shona said to me, I think there should always be a kind of special permission for people in the performing arts, because you need to see these things live. You just can't do them online yeah. and that is true and um, but i i think and i'm trying to get my head around the thought that we may never see the fringe um ever again quite as big as it was you know in in 2019 oh, yeah. Um, yeah i mean it, it, let's hope it, if it is smaller that it can be smaller and better you know and give people a better experience maybe mm-hmm. than than it was extremely sort of crowded and sometimes quite unpleasant trying to get a drink and all that you know in, in the way, the way that it was in the last um, decade or so. Um, 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 but you know, I think we're maybe gonna have to reconcile ourselves to a world where that kind of frenetic traveling and rushing and everybody converging here and everybody converging there is, is, is maybe just not gonna be, not so much impossible, but a bit more expensive uh, um, um to do and a bit less um popular to do people will be a bit more shy of it and of course the kinds of audiences who are generally speaking sort of fairly well to do and not entirely young people who can afford to chase around doing all of that um <clears throat> they may be the ones who are the most cautious of doing it you know so we have to take account of all that um all those possibilities on the other hand people may bounce back just desperate for the biggest fringe up who knows you know but well, because. Because the fringe is an organic thing, um, I think it will it will show quite a marked response to this, and I think it's likely that the response will be that it will peel off the outriders and the and the people who are just you know having a laugh, and and that it will become a bit smaller and possibly a bit better. I hope that's how it will be. Um, I think-
2: the thing that worries me is that there won't be as much money around because everybody yeah. is having to borrow, or you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the next five years is going to be very, very interesting. I have, to yeah. Say. yeah,
1: I mean, well, if we go down the route of having to pay for this whole episode in the way that we paid for the crash of 2008, yeah. with just massive increases in debt. And governments having to impose massive austerity, I think we'll all be completely fucked, to be honest. I think <laughs> our social no, I think our social fabric will be completely fucked. I mean, we've already got a national health service, certainly in England, which had no pandemic stockpiles at all because of cost cutting. And that's because of cost cutting. That's because of individual trusts saying, what the heck can we cut cut from this? Are we going to cut the outpatient's clinic or are we going to just not bother replacing the pandemic stockpile? You know, and when there's no pandemic, it's a no-brainer. You say, well, let's just leave the, pan- the absence of a pandemic stockpile mm-hmm. for another six months. You know, and then you get a pandemic, and there's no PPE. And mm-hmm. and you know, so so so, we cannot, we can't react to this the way we reacted to the 2008 crash with just more public spending cuts, more austerity, more injustice, more of the poorest having to pay the price. We can't do that. But how we going to avoid that is i just don't know it, it would take a sort of leap like the one in 1945 where they set up a whole new global financial system so that they could sort of support you know proper public services in, in a lot of countries and all yeah that.
2: well that's how it might have to be yeah,
0: yeah. just yeah. before we um yeah. wrap this up can i just ask your opinion on online content are you are you watching much
1: yeah, I'm loving it. I'm, I'm, I'm loving particularly the things that show you a a, a performance with an audience. Like I watched um, yeah. the Royal Court recording of Cypress Avenue with Stephen Ray, which is like the audience on at least two sides, I think, of the, the thing. So you, you feel kind of wrapped up by the audience. Um, mm-hmm. And that was, it was, it was, it was so much better than nothing. It felt like being in a theatre. It felt like you were with the audience. It was really well filmed. It was a great play. Stephen Ray was fantastic. But all it made you think was, I hope to hell we can get back to,
2: <laughs>
1: you know. I mean, it's it's much better than nothing. And it's, I mean, I don't know if you were on last night when the Abbey Theatre started there. They've got this thing called Deer Ireland, which is yeah. just like, it's just one monologue after another, basically. But it gives you a chance to see all these wonderful actors that might have been on the stage at the Abbey and people like Gina Moxley and, you know, all of these people. Um, right there and great writers writing the monologues, they're doing, they're doing four evenings of them and, mm-hmm. and of, of course it's better than nothing, it keeps you in touch with the organisation, with the writers, with the, the performers but it's, you know, but it's not live
2: okay. of course it's
1: not. It's, it's, just a, it's just a holding substitute it's like saying oh well there's no real coffee but here's a wee instant coffee to give you a good <laughs> reminder of what it once tasted like you know yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's like that really. Um, I mean, the, the, the good thing about it is I suppose that it gives you a great geographical reach. You know, I mean, if I suddenly wanted to watch something by an Australian theatre company, it would be no more difficult to do it than watching something from the Royal Court or something yeah. from the Traverse, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's good. It, it, it does kind of open your mind to the fact that you really are living in a yeah. global community that is very connected now through all of these things without having to do huge amounts of physical travel, which is great, but it is absolutely not live performance. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, um, but we, I think we will as a community of people that care about live performance, I think we will resist to the last the idea that you can ever replace live performance with anything else because you can't.
2: I I think your passion is absolutely incredible and just finally, we haven't asked you, or we have asked you, but have you got any life lessons from your mother?
1: (laughs) Life lessons from my dear mum, I would say, taught me so many things. It's hard to kind of, you know, uh, it was more like a sort of way of being. I Mm. think she taught me that, If you, if you, if you fill your mind with uh, beautiful things and memorable things, you know, beautiful pieces of, in her case it was poetry that she loved most, but you know, for me it would be all art forms, you know, beautiful pieces of music, beautiful pieces of poetry beautiful plays that you've seen and that you can still remember some of the words from, beautiful visual images, if you fill your mind with those kind of resources that have been created by human beings at their best, then that is the best preparation for life that you can have. You know, since I left school, the two things I found really useful was the amount of Shakespeare I learned by heart and and the... um, and the and the, the latin that i learned not because not because they're useful in any practical sense but because in dark moments you know or in moments where you feel that the world is really getting on top of you you can always know that other human beings have been there before and they've they've spoken about it and sung about it and empathized with that experience and so you just you never feel alone with a kind yeah. of mind that's full of full of full of beauty, you know, yeah. full of the yeah. beauty that human beings have made. Oh, you're uh, gonna
0: make me cry, Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> that oh is, my
2: God. That is so lovely, Joyce. Thank oh, you so much to. for coming on Boss Women.
1: Not at all. It's a huge, a huge pleasure. And that is what I learned from my mum. She, <laughs> she taught me to recognize she taught me to recognise the beauty that human beings could make at a very early age, mainly yeah. by by um by 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 reciting poems to me. Yeah. Beautiful.
0: Well, let's hope
2: we're mm-hmm. all at live theatre again very, very soon.
1: Yes.
2: Fingers yeah.
1: crossed. Thank you. <laughs> See you in <laughs> the stalls, as it were. <laughs> <laughs>